Faces come and go and I'm forever grateful Come and tell me long and slow exactly what I wait for Better times, yeah, better times, somehow I don't believe it I built a house up long ago just to up and leave it While some zones in Alaska open to upland bird hunting on August 1st. Yes, August 1st. And some other zones in Alaska started on August 10th. The rest of us in the lower 48 states have been patiently waiting to follow our bird dogs with loaded shotguns. But it's almost here. Flipping the calendar to September 1st. Just a couple of days away, prairie grouse openers will happen in Wyoming, in Nebraska, Montana, in North Dakota and South Dakota are just a little bit after that. So on today's episode of On the Wing Podcast, I'm joined by a trio of my Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever co-workers who also happen to share a fanatical love for prairie grouse with me. They love Sharpies. They love prairie chickens. In fact, I pulled our conservation operations team and, and these three names percolated to the top. So, so I think that's a credit to all three of you. We've got Emily Spolier, uh, returning podcast guest, our uh, but a new title, Pheasants Forever's North Dakota State Coordinator. Also returning to the podcast, Becca Clute, uh, Pheasants Forever's Minnesota Public Land Specialist, was last on our podcast during Rooster Road Trip. Help me out, Becca. Was it 2021? Is that right? I think it was, was it 2020. It might have been 2020. Okay. Um, and then a good friend of mine who has not been on the podcast, uh, Ben Wheeler, who has not been on the podcast, but has been come to my grouse camp, rough grouse camp. I don't know. It's got to be a eight time. Well, maybe not eight times, six times, something like this. A bunch of times. Um, do, do you know how many times, Ben? I think it's four. Okay. So four, I, 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 I exaggerated once again, but it's four. <laughs> uh, ben is our... PF and QF coordinating, coordinating wildlife biologist in Nebraska. So let's go around the horn. Um, Emily, it's probably been, it's been a, a while since you've been on the, the podcast. So for folks that maybe haven't heard you before, reintroduce yourself to the audience and congratulations on the new title. Thank you, Bob. Yeah, I think the last time I was on, we were chatting about my hunting trip in Alaska, um, where I got to go chase some ptarmigan. Um, but yeah, it's good to be back. Um, I'm Emily Spoliar. I'm the North Dakota State Coordinator. I still have to catch myself from saying Precision Ag and Conservation <laughs> Specialist because for the last four and a half years, that's what I've been out here. Uh, but transition to this new role this spring and it's been a lot to take on, but I am in good hands with our 
partners here in the state and then our chapter members and, and field staff members. Um, I couldn't ask for a, a better crew of support. So yeah, I'm thinking back to you've been on a number of podcasts. I think you you were on a podcast like four days after you started. Wait, I was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that was like episode. It was in the single digits. I think I came up to the North North Dakota employee meeting at like Sticklestack. Sticklestead yeah, Lodge. Yeah, Sticklestead Lodge in Southeast North Dakota. Yeah. And then you've been on Rooster Road Trip as well. <laughs> and we did some podcasts together. And yeah, right a- in my living room. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, how many dogs do you have these days, Emily? Uh, I've got three. So I've got a setter, a pointer, and a cocker spaniel. Um, I like a little variety. So they're all. <laughs> They're all good. I enjoy them. Um, and then I, I get to hunt with a lot of different dogs throughout the season. And um, I haven't met one I haven't liked at least a little bit yet. So. <laughs> and Becca, it's been, like you said, 2020 since you've been on. And if I recall correctly, you have a Springer. I do. Wiley. Yep. Wow. Springer Spaniel. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do for the organization. So I'm the Minnesota Public Land Specialist, and what I do is I basically help the restoration staff COGS turn. So I do a lot of grant administration. Um, I also help administer the Enhanced Public Lands Open Landscapes grant program that we run with funds that we get from the state. And the purpose of that program is for us to enhance and restore sharptail uh, grouse habitat in the east central and the northwest part of the state. Hmm. So that's what I do for PF. Okay. And did you grow up in Minnesota? I did. I grew up in Darwin, Minnesota. So if anyone's traveling on Highway 12, about an hour and a half west of the Twin Cities, and you see a sign for the world's largest ball of twine, that's where I grew up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you take your like high school graduation photos with the ball of twine? No, no. I think I, I think there's only one photo of me with the world's largest ball of twine. <laughs> All right, folks. If you're playing bingo at home, Darwin, Minnesota is the answer. Yes. <laughs> All right, uh, and then Ben Wheeler rounds out our our group today. Ben, you're the uh, coming from Nebraska, but you're not originally from Nebraska, are you? No, no. Uh, so I grew up in Indiana. Um, that's Nebraska is now what I consider home for me. I've been here uh, with our family for 15 years, but grew up in Indiana related to prairie grouse. Um, Indiana, we, our last prairie chicken, I think was in Saw it was observed in 1972, hmm. so nine years before uh, before I was born. Um, they're kind of kind of about 50 miles south of south of Chicago on the western side of the state. Hmm. Um, did my undergraduate work there? Uh, did my graduate work in Western Kansas um, uh, in Hayes, Kansas, 
not too far from Cocker City, Kansas, which also claims title as the world's largest ball of twine. Come on! No, no, no. I'm, I'm telling you. It, Cocker City, C-A-W-K-E-R, also claims title to the world's largest ball of twine. I will preface this by saying that Darwin has the world's largest ball of twine made by one man. So it, it was one hoarder that did our ball of twine. <laughs> uh, what are the odds that uh, we have the the two hometowns battling for the largest ball of twine distinction on this podcast? You know, every small town in America has to hang their hat on something, mm-hmm. you know. And so, yeah, but I, I feel like we it's prudent of us to roll these balls of twine next to each other and, and <laughs> See, see how they actually, how they play out. <laughs> so, not to not to outdo anyone, but Regent, North Dakota, which is the closest town to where I'm at, I don't know where it compares on the national scale, but we have a giant statue of a knight in armor fighting a dragon outside <laughs> of the Enchanted Castle Hotel. So. I see well, your balls of twine and, and raise them a night fighting a dragon. <laughs> and you guys have the Enchanted Highway, which is another special um, stretch of road you can drive down on your on your. That is a great trip. way to describe it. <laughs> yeah, I when I tell people directions to my place, I say, you know, turn left at the rooster statue. And if you pass the Pilgrim family, you've gone too far. And those are all different statues on the enchanted highway so it is a spectacle (laughs) it is one of the charms of rural america are some of the you know ball of twine you know i think about the big boomer prairie chicken statue just off of uh uh 94 south of otter tail minnesota um you know the the enchanted highway with the the rooster and i didn't know about the night but but you know i think about lemon south dakota and the petrified um i don't even know petrified forest maybe yep. it's it's a really bizarre like there's so many real oddities that you see when you travel the country bird hunting <laughs> <laughs> and, and and that's that's part of what you remember too is you know the that photo next to the ball of twine you know here's my limit of my limit of sharp tails and the largest ball of twine <laughs> uh, but that's you know those are cool aspects of rural america and i think about some of the oh just the cafe meals the hot beef commercial like i've never heard of that it, you know, roast beef with mashed potatoes over bread with gravy. It's like after a day when you've been out hunting, busting cattails or walking prairie grouse cover and, and, you know, the wind is kind of whipped right through you and you sit down at the cafe and you have a hot beef commercial. It's like all is right with the world again. And that's that's part of what a upland lifestyle is like. So mm-hmm. I, I didn't think of a, a wall, you know, world's largest ball of twine was going to be the, the centerpiece of this episode, but I guess you never know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and on that note, I want to thank uh, Onyx. Onyx Hunt is a national sponsor of Pheasants Forever. 
than quail forever. I don't know if they have pins dropped on the world's ball of twine, <laughs> but they do have public land and private land marked uh, on Onyx map. If you um, go to onyxhunt.com, you can download a free seven day trial and get 20% off your membership at Onyx by using the code PF. QF and a portion of your purchase at Onyx will go back to supporting Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's wildlife habitat mission, which, oh, by the way, also benefits prairie grouse. And we're talking specifically today about sharp tailed grouse and greater prairie chickens. Um, so let's, let's transition away from the world's ball of twine into prairie grouse habitat. Um, start with Ben for, you know, a listener that's coming to On the Wing podcast. They're likely pheasant enthusiasts, enthusiasts or, uh, you know, crazy about quail. But mm -hmm. there might be grouse curious. Describe the difference or describe prairie grouse habitat to somebody that's only chased bobway quail or, or roosters so far in their upland life. Sure. So, so prairie grouse are going to be something that needs grasslands and they need lots of it. You know, they, these aren't birds that can, they aren't what I would consider pocket habitat birds. Like you can find with quail and sometimes with pheasants where you, you know, if we, if we throw out um, five, 10, 20 acres of habitat, prairie chickens will show up. Um, they need a lot of grassland. Quite a bit of grassland. Some um, some people suggest that they need for a population they need twenty thousand acres of grassland, and that's just that's just that's just a lot of a lot of grass. Mm. Um, you know, when we look at when we look at our Great Plains landscape, um, the prairie chickens themselves are more of a tall grass species. So from here to the east, I mentioned I'm from. I'm from Indiana. Um, they occurred there. They occurred in in Illinois. They still do to a, to a certain extent. Iowa, uh, Missouri, and then the tall grass states to the to the north of there as well. Kind of edging into edging into Nebraska. Where I'm at right now is about as far east as you're going to see them. You don't you don't get into too many uh, in states west of here. But they need a lot of grassland. You know we've we've done a lot of work with some of our with some of our prairie chicken populations out here and sharp-tailed grouse for sure as well. And it seems like there is a little bit of tolerance that prairie grouse have with agriculture. Hmm. Um, but there gets to be a tipping point to where if you get so much agriculture, you'll see them begin to begin to taper out. And that percentage of agriculture tends to be around 30%. And once you get more than 30%, of your area coverage of agriculture, uh, prairie grouse tend to drop. And once you get to a certain point, you just won't see them anymore. So there's, there's a certain level of tolerance that we can, we can find with agricultural landscapes. And then also with just trees and tree encroachment. You know, once you get so many trees in a grassland, it's not a grassland anymore. It mm -hmm. becomes a forest. And so some people want to know, well, how many is too much? Um, they did some work on lesser prairie chickens, which would be a Southern Plains species. This was uh, many years ago, more than 10 years ago. And uh, 
one of the things they found there was if you have one tree an acre, which isn't much, that's one tree for a football field, um, hen, lesser prairie chickens are going to stop nesting there. One tree you have per one acre. tree an acre. Holy mackerel. Three trees an acre. They're just going that that species will just completely stop using that area altogether. Wow. That's not much. No, that's not much. I mean, that's a pretty hard line. Um, I would imagine with greater prairie chickens uh, up here to the north, it may not be quite that strict, but but the rule still tends to still still tends to hold where they just don't like trees. They don't like grasslands with trees. Um, and I feel like that rule is even more hard than the agricultural rule. Hmm. When we look into sharp tail grouse, um, sharp tails tend to tolerate a little bit more for tree cover, for brush cover, uh, but they even have a tipping point as well. Um, when I look for prairie chickens in my area of Nebraska here, there's overlap. You know, we can have, you can have areas where you get into both sharp tails and prairie chickens. If I were to split those things apart, um, in Nebraska, I'm calling prairie chickens habitat area where uh, we have more rolly hills, gentle sloping hills with fewer trees. Sharp tails will take a few more trees and you get into more choppy areas hmm. um, uh, where it's not as gently, not as gently rolling. Where does brush play into it versus trees, Ben? Because I think about some of the places I've hunted Sharpies in eastern North Dakota and parts mm -hmm. of western Minnesota and western Wisconsin where brush, low-level brush, not taller than me, seems like it's escape cover for Sharpies as opposed to, you know, the, the vertical structure of a, of a tree. It, it seems like there's a distinction there that's valuable to Sharpies in particular. It can be some of that. Some of that's related back to just kind of forestry labels that we put on it, um, and just the area that they're that that these birds occupy. So, one of the main trees that we struggle with out here in our grasslands are eastern red cedar, mm -hmm. which is actually a juniper. It goes clear from here, clear out east to the east coast. Um, and when we get those in open grasslands, I would consider that brush. Oh, that's you know, it doesn't it doesn't have that canopy. And so in order to get that sunlight for photosynthesis, it can hang out as a short, as a shorter, almost shrub like um, tree. It looks more like an ornamental in mm -hmm. some of our pastures, um, almost Christmas tree ish. But if you get that into a canopy, it has to stretch out in what you're probably thinking is more of a tree structure. It has to grow tall just in order to photosynthesize, in order to get that sunlight. It has to reach up. Yeah. So in our grasslands, in our in our pastures, it doesn't have to do that. It can it can stay short and get everything it needs. And you can get some really old trees or shrubs um, with one stem. Um, but you can get some really old eastern red cedars that don't have to get very tall. That's that's a. I'm glad you corrected me there because that's a really important distinction. We've talked on this podcast a lot about how horrible eastern red cedars are for um, for grasslands. They just eat up a ton of habitat, push out the what should be grassland habitat. They're biological deserts in many ways. They suck water out of the aquifer. I mean, 
public enemy number one to grasslands is eastern red cedars. So I could see where people would think, oh, he said brush is good and eastern red cedars. No, no, very bad. When I think about brush and where I find Sharpies, you know, western Wisconsin, it's scrub oak. In Mm -hmm. western Minnesota, it's like willows. Um, You know, so... So it's, it's really different, you know, and it's important to make that distinction. And, but ultimately grasslands, pure and simple, un, um, you know, unadulterated grass with forbs, right? Flowering plants mixed in is really what we're after for prairie grouse, isn't it, Ben? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I would offer one caveat there just to, just to muddy up the water here a little bit is our eastern red cedar in uh, from here to the east coast it's a native species it's a it's a species of plant that occurred here before we showed up Um, but it was relegated to these areas that uh, of our grasslands um, that were protected from fire Mm. so it was relegated to sometimes wetland areas where a fire would come through a prairie fire and it would stop and it would move around or uh, to some bluff areas and some slopes where you just didn't have that vegetation to carry the fire through it. So eastern red cedar is considered a fire intolerant tree. Um, uh, a fire will kill a tree if it's if it has enough intensity, uh, a, a cedar tree, and it'll move around there. Um, and so it, it makes things a little bit challenging for us where we have this native tree um, and it's invading our grasslands, but it's not necessarily um, the context of the tree itself as far as uh, as much as just making sure that we are restoring those processes that keep those trees at bay instead of invading our open open grasslands and for clarity here i'm going to ask each of you to kind of emily and becca to describe prairie grouse habitat for your states but you know and i as I ask Ben questions, I think the sand hills and anybody that's been to the Nebraska sand hills, it is rolling hills of grass, not a tree to be seen in many parts of it. Is is that the visual of ideal habitat in Nebraska for prairie grouse, Ben? In general, you know, uh, I think that's a really good generality. Um, uh, even where you know, even in some of the areas outside of the sand hills where we see really stable populations of of prairie chickens um, and to a to a certain degree sharp tailed grouse, you have that. It may not be in the sand, uh, but you still have those rolling plains, fairly fairly low concentration of trees, and low percentage of agricultural landscape mm. um, is where is where we see our best populations. Uh, in the eastern part of the state, over around Lincoln, um, where you have a lot more agriculture, we still have some prairie chickens, and they're hanging out uh, and hanging on in some island landscapes that um, are, in in many cases, they're uh, they're subsidized through programs like our CRP program mm-hmm. that really holds those populations up uh, really well. Without those programs um, out there, it'd be really tough to keep to keep that population in there. Mm-hmm. Let's bounce to the north, Emily, and describe Sharpie habitat. Because I don't think 
are there i don't think there's really chickens in north dakota or maybe there are but i know there's a lot of sharpies in north dakota describe that habitat there's not a huntable population of chickens in north dakota um over on the eastern side of the state there are some prairie chickens but it's just kind of a remnant population and then same with sage grouse we have a remnant population of sage grouse in the far southwest part of the state um, but yeah, sharp tail are kind of the, other than pheasants, the, the bread and butter of why people come to North Dakota to hunt. Um, they're really cool birds. Um, we've got Hungarian partridge as well. Um, and there's, you know, some overlap between the three species. If you're lucky, you can get them all in one walk. But um, as far as sharp tail habitat goes here, I mean, a lot of what's already been said, just kind of open grassland areas. Um, my favorite thing to tell people when they call me and say, I just need a general area of where to go hunt sharp tail in North Dakota is to send them to our little Missouri national grasslands. Mm -hmm. um, it's over a million acres. It's the biggest grasslands in the country uh, from, from what I've read on the, uh, USDA website, um, which feels like such a bold statement to make. And it's just so cool that we have such a treasure here in North Dakota. But um, that's where I like to send people because I know that they could throw a dart on the map in the grasslands and um, likely stumble on some sharp tail. Um, it might take a lot of walking, but that's part of the fun. And uh, from there, you know, they do kind of cover most of the state, but um, I always tell people that is like prime sharp-tailed grouse habitat. And from there, you can kind of travel east and still find them. Um, but when you're looking for that ideal prairie grouse habitat, it is our, our little Missouri national grasslands. Okay. So let's bounce to the east and I probably should have recognize that oh there's there's prairie chickens in north dakota because they are right on the minnesota north dakota border that clay county wilkins county area becca tell us about prairie chickens and sharpies and their habitat in minnesota yeah so in terms of habitat like ben said it's really similar except for um we are a lot more flat than what um you know kansas and and nebraska are um the prairie chickens typically they're in the red river valley of minnesota so they're sticking along that north dakota border um and then historically sharp tails have been up in the northwest part of the state so like way up in the far northwest mm. portion of minnesota and then in the east central portion around like that aiken carlton county area um but what we are starting to see are sharp tails venture down further into that prairie chicken range. Hmm. Um, and I think some of that has to do with their, I personally think they're a little bit more tolerant to different types of habitat. Um, I think with woody encroachment, that's something that we deal with um, in Minnesota quite a bit. They're, they're a bit more tolerant to that than the prairie chickens are. So we're starting to see our sharp tails come down from the north um, into the prairie chicken, um, the traditional prairie chicken range. And then we're also starting to see sharp tails come in in far southwest Minnesota. Um, and we think that those birds are coming in um, from South Dakota, from, from the Buffalo Ridge there. 
Um, mm. So that down in that portion of the state, it is a bit more more roly hilly. But predominantly, if you're gonna go to a place where you can find um, chickens and sharptails, it's up in the Red River Valley where it's it's pretty flat. There's a lot of agriculture up there. Um, but we're working on getting some bigger expanses of grassland made for um, both the prairie chickens and the sharptails up there. So, um, yeah, that's that's kind of the status of, of those two co-mingling up by us. We do have some um, hybridization that goes on, um, particularly further up in the northern portion of the prairie chicken range. Um, if you go to the Glacial Ridge National Wildlife refuge area they do have ground blinds set up there in the spring and you you can find um prairie chickens and sharptails mingling in lex up there so it, which is a great um, note because it, we had susan i had susan feligi on the podcast maybe a year ago who's a member of our national board of directors and a professor at university of north dakota who her research students study sharp tails and they've documented those hybrids between yep. um the greater prairie chicken and the sharp tails they're funky looking birds they're, they, they're really wild they are you know and and i was one of susan's first grad students and did um my research on sharp tails in northwest north dakota okay um but my um our collaborator in uh in north dakota for north dakota game of fish at the time he was like trying to see a hybrid dance. They don't know what to do. They don't know whether to have their wings out or in. They're just kind of that awkward dude in the middle of the leck and no one wants to go by them. They're just, there's kind of a mess. But, Is that, that yeah. I never thought about that, you know, because, you know, greater prairie chickens known as boomers, right? And Sharpies, they have that kind of mechanical break dance. So I've never thought the hybrid doesn't know that, whether to break dance or, or yeah. uh, <laughs> just the the white man in the middle of the bar that just ha has no rhythm. Pretty much. Pretty okay. much. That's pretty funny. Um, ben, you know, not necessarily a hybrid, but what about pheasants and prairie grouse? Do they coexist together? The, the short answer is yes, they can. Um, I'm thinking of like here in Nebraska, um, you know, where, where I'm at, I'm, I'm really fortunate. I can walk out on, on a spring day, a nice crisp spring morning on my porch and I can hear, I can hear chickens booming. Mm. You can hear them from when it's really quiet and still, you can hear them from a couple miles away, which is really interesting that a, that a bird the size of a football, you can hear from two miles away booming. Mm. Um, in the evenings, we can be grilling out. We'll hear quail whistling. We'll hear pheasants crowing. Um, and within a mile of my place, um, if you're lucky, you can find you can find some sharp tails. I've seen them. Hmm. Um, and so they can occupy they can occupy uh, a similar area. Like Emily said, you can you can find some places where you can um, harvest uh, both pheasants and prairie chickens or even pheasants and uh, and sharp tails in one walk. And that's a great adventure. It's a lot of fun. Um, it can be dangerous, you know, when when you're out in early prairie chicken or grouse season, and you're 
you're kind of locked into that mental image of if anything gets up around this size, I'm going to shoot. And then all of a sudden, you got to kind of pull back a little bit because pheasants might get up as well. Mm. Um, especially if it's not a male, if it's a female, mm -hmm. a pheasant hen getting up looks an awful lot like a prairie chicken. If, um, if you're not, if you're not ready for it. And so not only have you then shot a bird out of season, but you've also shot a hen, mm -hmm. which is like a double infraction. That's uh, it's in basketball terms. That's a flagrant. Two, <laughs> I think you get, you get kicked out of the game, but um, you know, in but, but there are places where they, where they do coexist. We've got to remember that these are both, these are both grassland birds. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, pheasants do well with agriculture too, especially small grain agriculture. Um, there are some areas of the country where where that is uh, their coexistence is a little bit more complicated. Um, I think of some of the eastern eastern places. So so prairie chickens specifically, um, they're a tall grass species. They're historically a tall grass species. So those traditional tall grass states, uh, Illinois, Iowa. Um, northern Missouri, um, where they just don't have a whole lot of grass left, um, those populations are really struggling. Um, I think Iowa and Missouri have a population of around 100 birds um, for each of those states. Illinois is about, I think, is about 150. And so when you have so few of birds, um, all of a sudden the, there's genetic consequences. And when they show up at one of these leks, where the breeding opportunities are, are occurring, it's like a family reunion. And when your breeding opportunities are at a family reunion, things aren't going to go well. It's, 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 not, it's not a good situation. Um, and so um, they end up pulling in uh, genetics from elsewhere. They've trapped birds here in Nebraska, and they've taken them to these different states um, to help increase the genetic diversity there. But one thing they've noticed, and they, they started documenting this in um, the mid-1900s, was... Uh, as prairie chicken habitat started to decline and they still had pretty robust pheasant populations. Pheasants are a bird that has, they have one, they have this really unique behavior where they will go out a hen and she will lay an egg and other nests, you know, and whatever nest, she's not real picky. If it's a, if it's a prairie chicken nest, she'll lay her eggs in those in a prairie chicken nest and keep going. And so then you have this nest that has prairie chicken eggs and pheasant eggs, right? And then the prairie chicken hen, the mother, will just sit on those eggs and, and she'll keep going about her business. As an upland bird hunter, your automatic instinct is to think, great, mm -hmm. you know, well, we have, a, we have a nest that has prairie chicken eggs and pheasant eggs. And where that gets problematic is pheasants only need 23 days for incubation for those eggs to hatch. Prairie chickens need 25. So once those pheasant eggs hatch, um, that mother, uh, these, aren't, these aren't songbirds. Mm -hmm. And so once they hatch their fuzzballs and they're ready to walk away, that mother prairie chicken looks at those eggs and she says, all right, here's my kids. And they walk away. And so all the prairie chicken eggs are not fully incubated and they stay there and they never hatch. Ugh. And so they end up walking away. This doesn't really become a problem in Nebraska. It doesn't really become a problem 
in Kansas, in South Dakota, where we have abundant populations. You know, if that happens, if we lose a nest or two, that's okay. Uh, when you have only a population of 100, that can be disastrous, mm -hmm. you know, to lose a nesting opportunity for the whole year when your populations are so low. And so the key there is really just, it's really just having adequate habitat, which is our mission, mm -hmm. you know, and making sure that we're putting enough habitat in the right habitat on the ground helps solve that problem where we can. That's really interesting. So 23 versus 25 days is our Sharpies 25 days as well, like prairie chickens. I believe they're right in that. They're right in that area. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What a difference two days could make. Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, Let's let's pull on that thread a little bit further, and um, Emily, talk about as those chicks hatch, you know, for those prairie grouse, sharpies, and chickens. We we talk at great length on this podcast, pheasants and quail, the importance of insects to chicks. Is that true of prairie grouse as well when they're when they're young brood of chicks that they're eating bugs? Yeah, definitely. And we have a pretty abundant crop of grasshoppers this year, uh, <laughs> along with, with other insects. But we've gotten a good amount of moisture throughout the summer, which has resulted in habitat conditions looking great. And then um, we have really good numbers of insects um, for food sources for those chicks. Um, we're fortunate to have quite a few small grains in this area too. So kind of as those start to come off, they'll, they'll feed out in those cut grain fields, uh, which makes getting them pointed and shot pretty difficult mm -hmm. later in the season because there's not a lot of cover in a cut wheat field. Um, but it's kind of a, a fun surprise when it does actually work. Uh, and same thing with Hungarian partridge they'll feed on insects as well as small grains and kind of transition more as the season progresses into foraging for vegetation and um, berries and, and things like that. Okay. So Becca, when I think about prairie grouse, sharpies and chickens, uh, I think after, after the hatch, they stay together as a family group for a while. But then it feels like they take a little bit different path with their family groups compared to pheasants um, for the, you know, four or five months after, after birth. Describe, describe their family unit, you know, from, let's say, August through the end of the year. Sure. So I guess um, we'll uh, back up just a little bit. So, um Sharptails, they'll start to, to hatch nests in about June-ish. Okay. Um, so that's going to be the point where they're going to start off with that family group where it's just the hen and her chicks. Um, you'll see those family groups go through early season, you know, September, October. So um, obviously those groups are going to get a little bit smaller as they're harvested if mm -hmm. it's in a, an area with heavier pressure. 
but then once you start to get into like the November, December, that's when you're going to start to see those mega groups. And what those are is those are a bunch of families, males and females, all coming together, and they basically just get together for the winter and they hang out for the winter. Um, so that's what they do um, until February, March, until um, spring lecking starts to pick up again. Um, and then at that point, you'll probably start to see more dispersed individuals through through lecking, with the exception of them actually being at the lec, because then there's a lot of them. But mm -hmm. the, how they spend the rest of their day, um, they're much more by themselves. And then you'll see them um, in those smaller, either smaller groups or individuals um, up until, like, you know, the, the breeding season and when those chicks start to hatch again. I bring that up because I think about anybody that's hunted prairie chickens or sharp tails, they think, you know, you, you can have success when the season opens in mid-September or early September, depending on where you are, into October. But then soon, like right after pheasant season starts, Sharpies get in those mega groups and it's hard to get closer to them because yeah. when one bird goes, it's a wave. And yeah, <laughs> right, because it's hard to get. You know, especially if you have a bumpy dog, um, you know, you just, you one flies and then they all go flying. Yeah, yeah, that's, I 100% agree <laughs> with you there, for sure. Those those guys are hard to get. So so I know in, in our family, it's, um, if you can get a late season sharp tail, you've done pretty well for yourself on that day. If that's the only bird you got, good for you. That was a tough one to get, so. All right, let's let, let's talk about getting a bird hunting tips, and let's go around the horn and give us um, your strategy, your thoughts on you roll up to your favorite prairie grouse habitat, and you can offer a distinction if we're talking sharpies or chickens. We'll start with with Emily. I know you're you love chasing sharpies in North Dakota. You roll up to your favorite spot. What's your thought process on? getting out of the truck, how are you going to hunt? Well, um, you probably give me a little bit too much credit for how much thought I put into devising a hunting plan. Um, if I show up with water for the dogs and a charged Garmin unit, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. Um, <laughs> but that's part of why I love living in North Dakota is because I don't have to put a ton of thought into making a plan beforehand because I can drive a few miles down the road and pile out and hunt a plot's property or state ground. Um, and then if I strike out, I can go drive another couple miles and, and hunt a different piece. Um, but another, another thing that kind of spoils me in my situation is just the, the dogs that I get to hunt over. Um, my setter especially is a fairly big running dog in prairie grouse country. Um, so in more of that, that open country, he'll open up <clears throat> as much as he needs to, um, to be able to, to find birds. So I can kind of plot along and look at the ground and the flowers or reptiles or whatever might be out there and, uh, just wait for that GPS unit to beep at me. But, um, no, it just kind of depends on what the cover looks like. Um, I want him 
kind of quartering out in front of me, um, hitting any objective points that might be out there. So whether it's uh, kind of a, a hilly area or an area with some shrubby-ish cover, which now I don't know if I'm using that word correctly. <laughs> <laughs> but if there's some spots that have like buffalo berry or snowberry, um, you know, he's he'll kind of hone in on those areas and, and check them out. Um, but I really like going out into those big expanses of grasslands where he can just really open up and, and roll out there. And, uh, and I can watch him from a hilltop and, you know, watch him as he kind of starts to work into, to scent and, um, establish a point. So I don't, my, the most planning that goes into my hunting is picking a spot on the map and then just making sure that I have the right dogs to hunt over, which is my favorite part. Yeah. Go on a walkabout. Um, yeah. What about you, Becca? What's your, do you, do you have a strategy when you go on a prairie grouse hunt? Um, yeah. And you know, if, if you're really motivated, you can start that strategy in the spring. So if you, look at onyx and you're like you know what i think this area might have sharp tails or prairie chickens on it um go out there in the spring and see if you can hear them and usually if you can hear them and then you can find that habitat there's an okay chance that you're going to be able to get into them in the fall Hmm. um, because they really they really like to stick around those lucking areas so um, if you're one of those people who likes to scout start scouting in the spring um, same thing can be said for rough grouse as well. Um, but in terms of when I get up to a spot, uh, everyone had better be quiet. You know, Bobby kind of alluded to, to those mega groups really, you know, getting kind of nervous and everything is even if you're super far away, um, you know, just remember to be quiet. Um, no slamming car doors, you no know, yelling at your dogs, train your dogs in a quiet manner because mm. then they'll be more used to it. You're not having to holler at them. Um, and then just remember to go slow and be thorough. I think since, since we've gotten a dog, I think you kind of have the, the want to go faster because you're like, oh, my dog will pick it up. But it's like, nope, just remember to go slow, you know, be thorough, work your cover um and hopefully you should be able to to find one and and two going slow for me i i hunt a flusher so i like them working a bit closer into me um so that if something gets up i can shoot it right away and if (laughs) if by chance they are really um you know really nervous bird i i do not run fast i cannot get you know 75 yards very quick so there's it's a likely opportunity that that i'll miss that but um yeah be it's, quiet and be thorough. It's really, I love your point about the springtime. You know, so many folks think about scouting as a big game hunting strategy. And the reality is scouting, being in tune with nature, checking out habitat is a year round endeavor for, mm-hmm. for bird hunters too. I mean, Emily, I know you run your dogs all the time and in trial and that's scouting for you and all of us when we're running our dogs after it's nesting season and you you pick up and you learn so much about the landscape and how the birds are reacting and what they're doing at different times of the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think if you haven't gotten to see 
prairie grouse on a lek, mm. you're only appreciating a very small percentage of what that bird is and how cool they are. Um, we hosted our education and outreach coordinator in North Dakota, Seth Owens, hosted several prairie grouse lek viewing events this year where he had high school kids and, and other groups get up at, you know, the crack of dawn to come out and sit in a, a ground blind that he had set up on a lek to be able to just watch things come to life on a spring morning and, and to be right there with those grouse on their lek and to feel the noises that they make and, mm. and see them perform. Um, Seth says that you shouldn't be allowed to be a North Dakota resident until you've seen until you've seen a, a sharp-tailed lek, and I think that should apply across all the the prairie grouse states. Um, it's just such an impactful experience that I think you're really missing out if mm. you haven't seen it yet. Yeah, it's fascinating. It is moving to see them and hear them, and like I mentioned, the sound is as amazing as the visual. Um, ben, what what's your approach to you roll up to your favorite stop, which sounds like it might be your backyard based on your summer barbecuing. You know, you can hear prairie chickens over here, sharp tails over here. But when you roll up to your favorite spot to go chase prairie grouse, what do you have a thought process, a strategy in mind? You know, I when I I don't know that I necessarily have a favorite spot. I, I enjoy exploring new areas and, and finding new areas and uh, just finding the kind of the, the intricacies of those of those new spots. Um, when I isolate those, what I'm looking for typically is is big pieces of grass, um, not just because prairie chickens and sharp-tailed grouse need big areas, but also it it gives me an opportunity at them. If I show up to a – these are birds that can – I mean, if you ever butcher um, a prairie chicken or a sharp tail and you open up, um, open up the skin on their breast, you'll notice their breast muscle is very purple. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a there's a biology side of that, you know, and that uh, that really purple colored um, compared to like a domestic chicken, which is really white. You consider that the white meat um, compared to a duck, which is also really really dark. Um, as a biology lesson, what that's telling us is there's, uh, there's aerobic respiration going on there, um, which means they these things can go a long way. Prairie chickens, they're going to be the, they're going to be the marathon runners of the upland game world. It's not like a, a bobwhite quail where they're going to get up and in a hundred yards, they're going to sit back down because they can't go any further. And so if I'm hunting a place that only has 20 acres and I, and I kick up those birds, one time that's probably the only time i'm going to get a i'm going to get a shot at them because they're going to go off the property so immediately i'm looking at properties that give me uh that give me opportunity to uh to follow up on some birds if i if i happen to get them up and opportunity at potentially another uh, another shot at them i'm looking at grazing patterns out there you know as anything have has anything been grazed a little bit more or a little bit less? Is there areas where there's a little bit taller grass out there? In some places, on some of those, on some of those um, uh, national grasslands, at least, you can even find maps that, that they will make that show 
what grasslands have been rested this past year or part, part of the, this past year. And those can give you some clues uh, that you can identify. A lot of times they just hide those right inside of the grouse wing boxes on your way in. You can open those up, take that out, and you can find some typically good habitat there. Um, in a drought year, I'm looking for water. You know, um, if it's really dry, they're not going to be too terribly far from water, whether that's a tank, uh, like a livestock tank, or even just a wet area. Um, and if you do that, an added benefit here is um, if you have a migratory game stamp, you can have a, a, a little bit of fun on a mixed bag adventure. You can, you can try and grab yourself a, a, a snipe or a rail in there too, while your dog cools down on those really hot early days. And so uh, I'm looking for water too. Um, and then I'm also looking for food. If I get a, if I get a, grouse in the bag, I'm opening it up and I'm looking to see what's in that crop. What are they eating right now? I think we can, I think the fly fishermen and fly fisherwomen of the world uh, give us a really good example here where they're really dialed into what are those fish eating right now? What's, what's, what's the hatch right now? And I think we can draw from that. You know, what, what are our grouse eating right now? Are they, are they locked into rose hips? Are they still hanging on to a lot of grasshoppers and insects? Are they hitting up the poison ivy berries? And if you know what your grouse is eating while you're walking through trying to get your next bird, you start to key in on those things mm -hmm. on the landscape. Not only are they out here, but you get a little bit more precise. Well, where are they? Are they on the tops of the hills? Are they on the bottoms? Are they on the side slopes? Um, are they in the south facing slopes? Are they in the north facing slopes? And immediately you begin to create these patterns that you'll begin walking and, towards. Um, and I feel like that's really, really helpful. So once you get a bird in the bag, you're not done hunting. You're still, you're still learning out there and um, uh, just kind of becoming an ecologist with a, with a gun in their hand. That's, that's tremendous um, set of tips there. I've heard people say, always hunt the leeward side of a hill. It, is that just, people that have had success there and they found birds or is that something that you can say no that that's a pretty good indicator of, of place to go is hunt the leeward side of a hill um i feel like a safe answer here is it depends <laughs> <laughs> you know on a in nebraska and a lot of the great plains we we can get some really stiff winds mm -hmm. um uh, when you get a really heavy wind, that leeward side, they'll they'll head there for protection. But on lighter days where it's just kind of uh, a slight breeze, you can find mm -hmm. them on either side. And so yeah. once you get to a certain point, um, you'll start seeing them in that more protected side of the more protected mm -hmm. side of the hill. And one other thing that you mentioned, you know, that they're a function of the, these prairie grouse live in quote unquote tall grass prairie. But for folks that are, again, grouse curious, but maybe hardcore pheasant hunter, that, that taller grass, if you're hunting grass that's pheasant cover, you're probably in the wrong spot. That's, that's too tall. Like it, it, my perspective is like, if it's over your shins, that's, that's probably too tall for Sharpies and chickens. Do you maybe start with Emily? Do you, is that similar for you in North Dakota? Do you think 
you think it needs to be significantly shorter than pheasants? Yeah, uh, shorter and thinner cover than where you find pheasants. Um, most of our grouse or the the majority of the ones we have here are in like the short grass and kind of mixed grass prairie areas and that taller and, and that's, you know, native cover. Um, that cover isn't necessarily what pheasants are seeking out. They're, they're happier in that thicker, taller, you know, more dense cover that is closer to agriculture. Yeah. And if you're near the cattails, you're probably not near prairie grouse cover because that, that generally is too thick. Uh, at least been my experience, too thick. All right, so let's let's go around the horn. We'll start with Becca. You know, we we had a pretty rough winter across the majority of the the northern upland pheasant country, in particular prairie grouse country, Minnesota, the Dakotas. Um, but spring was probably pretty favorable. Give us your overview on. We'll go Minnesota first, then we'll move down to uh, Nebraska and bounce back up to North Dakota. We'll start with Becca. Sure. So the sharp-tailed population in the northwest part of the state is uh, either stable or slightly increasing. Um, however, our population that's in the east-central part of the state um, is still in a slight decline um, to the point where a couple of years ago they did shut down the hunting season. Um, for that population, but you can still hunt sharp tails in the northwest zone, which is basically like Highway 53 and, or, or excuse me, west of Highway 53 and then north of Highway 2. Um, so that's where you can find um, sharp tails in Minnesota or places that hunt sharp tails in Minnesota. Um, and then for prairie chickens, that population is relatively stable compared to last year. Um, so if people went out and hunted last year, I think the numbers should still be relatively the same. Um, our sharp tail season opens on September 16th, and then our prairie chicken season opens on September 23rd. Um, and in Minnesota, to hunt prairie chickens, you do need to apply for a prairie chicken tag. Um, however, that um, period is already closed. That closed on the 18th of August. So. Um, remember that date for next year mm -hmm. if you want to hunt, um, and it's residents only. Um, so if you're a resident of Minnesota and you want to try to get a Minnesota um, prairie chicken, uh, look to apply for a tag in August, early August. Yeah, that's a good reminder. Like when game fair comes around, it is absolutely time to apply for your prairie chicken permit because it's almost mm -hmm. over. Yep. Um, all right, let's bounce south to Nebraska. What's um, what's your Sharpie and chicken season look like in uh, in Nebraska, Ben? You know, I think it's going to be, we've had a couple years of drought, and um, I think we've had good production this year. Um, we've had great conditions for production. However, every year is not just an, uh, it's not just, operating in isolation. It's kind of a product of well, what happened the last couple of years and what mm -hmm. kind of population do we have? And, and our population dropped the last couple of years due to, due to the drought. And even though we have good production conditions this year, good nesting conditions uh, due to some rainfall recovery, 
um, we just had fewer hens out there. And so um, we're taking an upswing, but it's going to be a couple of years of an upswing to get into really good numbers again. Um, so I think people hunting in Nebraska this year, they're going to, they're going to see some birds. Their, uh, their game bag might be a little lighter than, than it would be over like the 10 year average. Mm. Um, but they're going to see some birds, um, and we're heading in the right direction for, for upcoming years as well. Cool. That's good to hear. Glad that uh, Nebraska's come coming out of the drought. It's been a tough road. Yeah, it has. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's let's go north to uh, North Dakota. Uh, what are you What are you seeing on the landscape? You're in the heart of it. You live in the heart of it as well. What are you seeing for for sharpies, Emily? I am ready for September 9th to get here. <laughs> uh, it seems like we had very successful early nesting attempts. All the broods that I've seen have been. Uh, pretty big and then they've all been fairly mature. Um, so you're starting to see them look like adults versus, mm. you know, little, little chicks. Um, so that's been nice to see that, like I said, habitat conditions look good. Um, last year, our number of reported harvested sharp tail were up about 37%. Oh, wow. And that's a big jump. Yeah, the number, the percentage of people hunting out there or the, the number of people hunting out there also increased a little bit. So that might have helped pad those numbers some, but we had a, a really good production year for them last year. This year, I don't have any numbers yet because they do roadside counts kind of throughout the month of August. So those won't be out until the end of the month. Um, but things are looking really good from what I've heard. Uh, I think people will be very pleasantly surprised by the number of Huns on the landscape this year. Um, from what I've heard, their numbers are the highest they've been in the last like 30 years here in North Dakota. Um, wow. So that's exciting. Um, they're <laughs> just a really fun bird mm -hmm. and they do have quite a bit of overlap with sharp tail. So I think that's something people can look forward to if they're planning a trip out to North Dakota. Uh, but yeah, sharp tail numbers look great. Um, to say we had a tough winter is quite an understatement. Mm -hmm. <laughs> winter was awful. Um, but those sharp tail are pretty hardy. Uh, so they, they came through all right. And Thankfully, we had good spring and summer conditions that kind of took it a little easier on them. Great. I will, I too will be in North Dakota on September the 9th to open up my season. So um, I am thrilled to hear your report of uh, good Sharpie numbers. Um, ben, you, you know, as, as we were prepping for this podcast and before we get to the around the horn closing thoughts, you you said, you know, I, I want to talk about, you know, a couple of years ago, I spoke at a prairie chicken festival and they asked me, what can it tell, tell us about what we can do for prairie chickens if we don't own land? Maybe we're not even a resident of Nebraska. It, that was something important for you to pass along. So tell us, tell us that story. Yeah. I mean, if you're a landowner, um, 
creating, maintaining prairie chicken habitat, it's not rocket science. It's keeping grasslands, grasslands, um, keeping cows out there, keeping your trees off the ground um, uh, from encroaching into your grasslands. It's not, it's not rocket science at all. And there's a lot of people that really enjoy uh, prairie grouse hunting. Some people enjoy going and um, sitting in a viewing blind in the spring and they, and they become enchanted a little bit with these, with these little mm -hmm. football sized birds. Um, and it's in some cases a, a very moving experience for them. And they want to know, well, what can we do? I don't own a ranch. I don't, I, I don't even live in this state, but what can we do to positively impact prairie chicken conservation? Um, and they asked me to make a list, you know, what are some things that, what are some things that we can tell these people who are coming here, sitting in our blinds, uh, some positive things they can do that they can take home um, uh, to have an impact on prairie chicken, uh, prairie chickens themselves. And it, take, it took me a while. I was thinking of some things. There's some indirect things that people can do, and there's some very direct things that people can do. Um, one of the indirect things, a few of the indirect things that you can do is one of them is just buy a hunting license. Whether you hunt or you don't hunt, buy a hunting license. Those funds that go into a hunting license go into the management of great places for prairie chickens, prairie chickens and, and prairie grouse in general. It goes into the research for those species that help us uh, know even better how that we can how we can conserve those conserve those species. Uh, begin supporting groups that financially are doing great work um, to promote and manage and restore. Um, prairie grouse habitat. Um, volunteer some of your sweat and some of your time on on areas. If you're from Nebraska and you love it and you but you don't own ground, um, go and uh, go and volunteer at your at your local WMA. There's a lot of states that have programs where you can volunteer on your public areas uh, and adopt a wildlife management area program. So get out there, um, take your take your tree loppers and start and start doing some damage on some of those trees. <laughs> but there's also some other direct things you can do. One of them is just through your purchasing power. You know, um, go out there and make a very um, intentional decision to buy grass-fed beef. I mean, I think some a lot of people have seen those labels in the grocery store, grass-fed beef. What does that mean? And um, those are that's beef that's been uh, produced just through grasses instead of instead of going and getting fed um, a grain through a feedlot or uh, when you're at the pump and you're filling up your car you know you have an option there and you have a decision to make do i do i do the straight unleaded or do i get this ethanol blend and sometimes people don't know what is that ethanol blend and that's largely corn um, and if, uh, we talked earlier about these tall grass prairie states and um, a lot of those things, a lot of those grains that are coming out of those uh, cornfields that are now occupying a form of tall grass prairie are going towards uh, feedlot production of beef and other and other livestock or to ethanol production. Um, I don't know if we're ever going to get those back, but we can help keep our current grasslands still in grasslands by some of the purchasing power that we have. Um, and the last thing I would just mention is just become an active, an active part of your local prairies. And even if you're, even if you are somewhere that is hundreds of miles away from your nearest prairie chicken, um, 
you can go out there and you can have positive impacts on those prairies. And you may not ever have a prairie chicken there, but those places are still important for Henslow sparrows. Mm-hmm. And they're still important for ground squirrels and they're still important for box turtles. And you can still create a really good home for them. That's a, that's a terrific list, Ben. I'm going to add two more to it for you. Number one, you, and you mentioned this, um, CRP is um, one of the things reasons that we still have prairie chickens and sharp tails on the landscape today is it, that program is creating habitat for pheasants, for quail, but also for prairie chickens, lesser and greater, and um, sharpies. And we're in a farm bill year. So send a note to your two senators and your representative and say, I love CRP. CRP creates places for me to hunt. It creates habitat for birds that I love. Um, it helps stabilize rural economies by creating access because it's the foundation upon which voluntary public access habitat incentives program, walk-in programs are built. Um, CRP is a jewel for, for, for prairie grouse. So let your elected officials know that. The other piece, again, it's another advocacy piece, and you've heard it on this podcast before. We're fighting for the creation of a Grasslands Act modeled after the North American Wetlands Conservation Act. It's a voluntary program that empowers landowners to keep grasslands on the ground for these, for these species, lesser prairie chickens, greater prairie chickens, Sharpies, pheasants, quail, Henslow sparrows, dick sissels, regal fritillaries, monarch butterflies, honeybees, water quality, soil erosion, that Grasslands Act, uh, it could be just another crown jewel to keep in these birds that we love on the ground. So go to actforgrasslands.org. You can sign the petition if you're listening to this. And that petition will send an email to both your senators and your U.S. representative that, that says, hey, let's let's get this thing created because the fastest disappearing ecosystem in our on our continent, and I'm sorry, on the, on the planet is not the rainforests. It's our prairies. It's our grasslands. It's our sagebrush. It's the Everglades and, and they're in our own backyards. But I, I love that list, Ben. Um, all right. Let's let's go around the horn. I really appreciate you all. I mean, here we are again, over an hour. I did it again. <laughs> but uh, let's go around the horn. We'll start with Becca. Um, and I'll, you know, maybe prompt prompt the final question with, you know, it's clear that all three of you love prairie grouse, whether it's sharpies, chickens. Maybe I'm going to ask you to sort of articulate that. What? Why do you love them, Becca? Well, first, I think you got to love a bird that laughs at you when you miss. (laughs) Like, that's just such a charming characteristic of sharp tails that they have. But, um, I mean, sharp tails were my introduction into the world of upland game birds and habitat management. So um, that's kind of where I was, like, quote, unquote, born and raised in my education. And... um, they've just kind of stuck with me and they're just such a charismatic bird that it's hard not to love them. Yeah. Yeah. And they're understatedly beautiful too. I, yes. I, I think 
it's easy to fall in love with a the plumage of a ringneck pheasant but you know when you hold that sharp tail and you look at the feet with the feathers on in mm-hmm. the prairie chicken and that square tail i mean they're just so gorgeous when you just stop and admire kind of the natural beauty of them mm-hmm. um emily what's um what's your closing thought as we put a bow on this uh it's really tough to pick just you know a very concise thing that i love about sharptail here in north dakota um i love their furry feet their their little feathered feet are just really fun um just kind of a neat thing to point out to people especially if it's their first time hunting sharptail um just how well equipped they are to deal Mm. with our weather here um but i think it's not even so much just the individual bird as it is the area where they live um, is typically like we've talked about big expanses of grasslands not a whole lot of development going on Um, so it's it just puts you in places that are so beautiful and it took me a little while to really appreciate how beautiful prairie grasslands are Um, but now every time I I'm out there, it's just something I appreciate more and more. Um, just the places that it takes you and, and how, uh, undeveloped a lot of them are. And, uh, you're, you know, the closest other inhabitants are a lot of times just a bunch of cattle. Mm. (laughs) So that's, it's just fun to be out somewhere where you can walk a couple miles in, any given direction and follow your dog and be able to see them the whole time and to watch them work. And kind of like I touched on earlier, just being able to watch them come into bird scent and establish a point, um, being able to see that whole scene play out in front of you, even if they're a couple hundred yards away. There's just, there's a lot to love about it. Yeah, there is indeed a lot to love. Uh, Ben, you get uh, the final words. What's what's your? Why do you love prairie grouse so much? You know, I think I think it just similar to what Emily said. It just takes you to these hauntingly enormous places where I feel like it gives you this healthy sense of smallness, you know, mm-hmm. and, and kind of puts you in perspective. Um, these places that. Um, you get this feeling that you're not meant to conquer, but you're, um, you're kind of meant to be immersed by, you know, these wide open, wide open places. Um, I was in Northern Michigan, um, many years back and, um, this tidbit that I got from a, from a mentor and he was a, he was a fly fisherman, um, loved brook trout love fishing for brook trout. And he mentioned to me, sometimes he goes out and, and, um, he never catches a fish and he just gets so discouraged and he has to remind himself sometimes that he's in his favorite place, you know, that, uh, even though he didn't catch anything, what a, just what a mesmerizing place. And I've tried to, I've tried to take that with me. And, you know, we go on long walks 
for, for prairie grouse, sometimes on very hot early September days. And sometimes when I get to my, the farthest place from my vehicle on my walk, um, I'll ask myself, and especially when it, when it hasn't been productive, when, uh, when I haven't had, when I don't have a bird in my pocket, I ask myself, why is this place special? You know, um, maybe I haven't harvested a bird or I haven't even seen one yet. What makes this place important? And just intentionally asking that question. Um, even if I don't get a bird here, is this, is this place, is this grassland still important? And I just love that. I love that prairie chickens deliberately take me to those places where I can ask those, ask myself mm. those questions. Hmm. That's, that's very powerful. Um, it, it is amazing. You know, the, so much of the connection between all of our favorite upland birds, they do take us to beautiful places, whether it's Merns, quail, taking you to the canyons of Arizona or sharp tails, taking you to the little Missouri grasslands in North Dakota. It's just upland birds live in beautiful places and inevitably you get lost in the moment of following a dog in your own mind where you can find peace in a very chaotic world. And that really is a, a tremendous thing that to discover when you're out, you know, with a shotgun in your hand and a prairie chicken in your mind. So well said, really well said. Um, thank you, Emily Spolier. Um, thank you, Becca and Ben for joining me for this episode of on the wing podcast. I wish you all tremendous success as your your seasons open up here shortly um listeners if you can't tell you've got uh, folks that love pheasants and in love quail that are employees of pheasants forever and quail forever but we love the uplands and we love all of life that lives there and imagine you do too um you know as as ben mentioned one of the things you can do if you love sharpies and chickens and sage grouse and huns is help us create habitat by becoming a member of pheasants forever and or quail forever um right now you heard the music open in this episode trampled by turtles we got the special trampled membership offer collaboration going on right now pheasantsforever.org slash trampled or quailforever.org slash trampled you get a a one-of-a-kind t-shirt if you join and know those dollars are going to our habitat mission. And then one final tip for you as you're getting ready. Hopefully you're listening to this as you're heading to somewhere chasing birds. There is always, always a sleeper bird on opening day. Don't empty your shotgun shells on those far shots. There is one bird waiting to give you a layup. Don't be empty when that happens because it'll i guarantee there's going to be a sleeper bird all right good luck i'm bob sapier reminding you to always follow the dog something good will rise thanks folks <laughs>